Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. All right, so this is our first episode of Living Theology Podcast, and we wanted to begin this podcast just by explaining a little bit of who we are and what our vision is for this podcast. And so we're three brothers who are all in ministry. Uh, Doug and I are both also seminary students right now, Uh, but I wanted to just give a little bit of bio. So Doug and Greg, can you guys give a little bit of bio of who you are? and what you're doing right now in life, and then I'll get a, give a little bio of myself. Sure. Um, I went to the University of Colorado Boulder along with each of these guys and graduated in 2011, and since that point, I've been on staff with The Navigators, which is a Christian ministry. Um, I'm currently in Athens, Georgia, working part-time and going through seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm not sure if I'll be a pastor or work with the NAVs or do missions in the long run, but I've got a heart for God's word and living it out. So I'm excited to get to do this with my brothers. And my name is Greg. I live in Colorado Springs. I have a wife, Gretchen, and two kids, Jackson and Wesley. They're one and zero. I've been working with the Navigators for about five years. I also went to CU Boulder, graduated in 2014, and I worked on college campuses, but the past two years I've been working at the Air Force Academy with cadets. Cool. And then I'm Mark, and I work as a pastor of high school ministries at a church in Boulder, Colorado, uh, Calvary Bible Church, which is an evangelical free church. I also went to CU Boulder following in the footsteps of my brothers, and have just started seminary as in about a couple weeks ago, got in my first class through Reformed Theological Seminary and doing some online seminary. So just in the very beginning of learning, but really a lot of the vision of this podcast is we're three brothers who are in ministry and who have grown up. Both Doug and Greg have had a huge influence in my life and um, we're two years apart each. And we kind of wanted to do a project where we would get an opportunity to spend more time with each other, talking through some of the issues and things that we're actually facing in each of our ministry contexts and talking about things that we think would actually be helpful for people in our ministry, friends, people that we know who are walking through life and experiencing things. So a lot of the vision of the podcast is we want this to be something that would be helpful to your life. Uh, it's called Living Theology because, first of all, God is living. Uh, theo is the prefix means God. And so theology is the study of God. So first of all, God is living. His word is living. Uh, we are living and we are meant to live by and through his word. And so that's kind of some of the layers of living. So we really believe that what you understand and believe about God and his word affects and it's going to determine the way you live. And so that's sort of the vision of this podcast and what we're trying to do through it. And uh, Greg, could you start out by just telling us a little bit about uh, how we're going to start for the first 10 weeks in this podcast and the project you're currently working on? Yeah, so the first 10 weeks, it's going to be a little bit different because we're going to be going 
a little bit more topically around the top 10 hard questions of the Christian faith that we kind of get on the college campus. And so this semester I'm leading an apologetics course. It's a 10 week thing. And each week we're just going one question at a time answering the main big questions that people are getting these days on the college campus. So that's what we're going to be doing for the first 10 weeks. Yeah. And so these are really, you would say, Greg, like 10 hard questions about the Christian faith, right? Yeah. Just our background being at Boulder when we got there, I just remember starting to explore a lot about apologetics and starting to look in some of the harder questions about Christianity surrounding hell, exclusivity, issues with gender. Those things were coming up pretty often. So started looking into those and have over the years started to formulate answers on those and really enjoy helping college students with that. Yeah. So what we're going to do for these next 10 weeks is we're going to each uh, be, we're going to be having conversations through these topics and we're really just inviting you all to join for those conversations. And so um, without much further uh, introduction, then we're going to begin to do that a little bit. And I just want to start off by um, start the conversation, Doug, just by asking you, can you explain a little bit of how we even go about apologetics, how we go about hard questions? Yeah, because I think it's important to realize the value that apologetics has and to realize that it's a limited value, but it's still valuable. Because I think when we were in Boulder at times, we'd get a lot of these hard questions and try and answer them and think, at least I thought at times, if I just get the right answers, then people will convert. And if I just know what to say, then God will work in people's lives. And our answers do matter, and they've got value for that. But I think we've all wrestled with that question of how do we see people come to know Christ? How do we know the gospel ourselves better? And seeing the way that apologetics is played out in that. But to realize it's got a specific value so it's not the answer for evangelism but it's a component of it it's not the answer for how do you keep your faith in college but it's a component of it so even for you guys greg and mark what would you say you see as some of the main ways that apologetics has value that's actually a question i asked because we started the 10-week course last week and that's something I asked the people as we kind of the opening question for the first night and I think the two main things that were brought up is one just knowing what to say when you're asked and the evangelistic focus of it knowing how to respond not having to be as scared to get into those conversations because I think one big reason people get nervous about doing evangelism is they're scared they're not going to know what to say or how to respond when people ask those hard questions. But most people, and this is what I've seen for myself, have said that the main way that they've benefited has just been their own personal growth. And as they've had conversations and not known what to say, they've gone back and looked into those questions and found really valid answers. And that just kind of added fuel to what I believe is true. And there's stuff behind this and I can actually hold on to this. And I think just continuing to build that security and foundation and all of it 
essentially points to the gospel, but there's a reason that we believe what we believe, and it holds up more than any other worldview, any other way of thinking, any other philosophical, philosophy, philosophical yeah. standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of yeah logically standpoint. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in the same way, I mean, I went to see you and some of those conversations, but mostly I think of, for me, it was in the philosophy classroom because I did a minor in philosophy and I just think of like, that was some of the most fun times I had. Some of the most honestly frustrating times. I didn't feel like there were a lot of other Christians at CU studying philosophy or in th- even just doing a minor. And I was just mostly doing it for fun and stuff, but I think the more I had to push on and examine what I really believed, the more my actual understanding of the gospel grew. And I think that's even why I enjoy yeah. looking into different understandings and different worldviews is because the more I see into those things, I think the more my view <clears throat> of Christ grows, even just how compelling the gospel actually is, how beautiful the gospel is, how great the work of Christ is. And I think the more I look into that, the more I see that Christ is actually answering all the questions that we have. And he really is the desire that we have. And then I think of um, a value of philosophy. I think of even just the Apostle Paul. It's in Acts 26, I believe, where he stands before um, Agrippa and he quotes a philosopher and a poet of the, is it the, of the Greeks, I believe. Um, cause he quotes two of them, Aratus and someone else, but it's kind of cool cause he's quoting their own poets and using their own poets and their own philosophers as an inroad to sharing the gospel. And one of the quotes he makes is one of the coolest ones, which is in him, we live and move and have our being. Mark, I think that's Acts 17. Acts 17. Okay. In front of the Areopagus, or however that word's pronounced. Yeah, yeah. I think Areopagus is right. And he's quoting, yeah, Aratus uh, from a poem in the second one. And the first one is Epimenides of Crete. So, but he's quoting, yeah, the, their own their own poets and philosophers, which is pretty cool. Yeah, one thing yeah, I think that... Oh, you got Go for it, Greg. Yeah, I just saying one thing I think that I try to encourage people in is as Christians, if what we believe is true, we don't have to be scared of the truth and we don't have to be scared scared to ask those hard questions. And like you were saying, Mark, I think that as we look into those questions, our view of God grows and our view of his wisdom increases. And so if you have a worldview that's not true, then you have to be scared if you have to defend it because it's not always going to match up and you're going to have to you're going to have vested interests that distort the conversation. But if we really believe that God is who he says he is, we can have an open hand. So usually I start my course by just saying, if this isn't true, let's do something else. You know, this is kind of a funny thing to be part of, but if it's not, let's, let's not do this. But if it is, let's submit our whole lives to it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that point. Even just thinking, if what we believe is true, let's look into the truth. 
and there's times where that's unsettling because there's things in scripture that are so against our culture that are so against the ways of any culture that are against our own thoughts that just don't make sense right away so it is a step into the unknown and sometimes into darkness because it's harder to see what's true than to just kind of close my eyes and imagine that oh i'm definitely right but there is value to actually step into some of that unknown and to be corrected and changed by what scripture says and open to god's truth um, even thinking through for us, what is the basis of apologetics? It's not fundamentally our reason, our emotions, our experience, or proves. Those things are helpful and those are a part of it. But ultimately, our basis is that God is the creator and he has spoken because he has declared truth in his word that is what we go to and there's part of that that is kind of a foolishness to the world because we start from the place of saying scripture is true yeah mark how would that would be different than what you learned in your philosophy classes yeah i mean because emmanuel kant is like the perfect example of emmanuel kant tries to base absolutely everything on reason and even the Enlightenment ideals are of the human reason, the, the autonomous, meaning we can operate on our own, do it on our own reason. And the reason, and I think what's significant about that is the assumption that you have going in. Um, if, hmm. if you assume that we are unbiased in our thinking and that we can actually approach um, truth with a complete open blank slate, unbiased, autonomous, then that would work. Now, a lot of people, even Christians and non-Christians, would recognize that we do have biases, which is good. And that's something that you really have to understand, no matter where you come from, to begin to, un- to learn, is you have to understand your own bias. But what I think we see in Scripture is a picture of how the fall of humanity into sin has actually affected the way we think. It's not mm-hmm. just like some parts of this world are affected. Our minds are affected. Uh, we're darkened in understanding because of sin. Mm-hmm. And that's what Romans 1 talks about, how claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so just understanding we don't come from a strictly unbiased standpoint that actually sin does affect. And that's why... If you look in church history in like the 1500s Reformation, one of the huge moves was that they moved actually away from this dependence upon just the human thought and intellect into saying our foundation is the word of God, which is, I believe, what the biblical historical Christian view has always been, that our foundation of truth is God and his word, and that we trust that over anything else. And we set that as our starting point. And, um putting that as that's that's our belief that's that's where we stake and that's where we begin is a trust in the word of god over every other voice that we could ultimately come up against and that's also where i think the idea of the holy spirit comes in that the holy spirit is actually interpreting these things to us and helping us understand and that's why apologetics is not just for the elite 
or talking about your faith, defending what you believe is not just for the elite, because you can be a, a, a five-year-old and truly have faith in Jesus and be more justified than the most brilliant atheists in the world. And Doug, you, you've talked about this a little bit with, um, even I remember it with Jonathan Edwards and the way he approached um, sharing the gospel with people who didn't have a lot of like the background in Western philosophy and reason and stuff. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, some of this is from Piper. Some of this is from reading Jonathan Edwards. Those two sources are about the same. But <laughs> one, of the things, one of the things that Edwards had happened in his ministry is he was removed from his church over a few different reasons. And he then went to work with the Native Americans. And Edwards was the greatest theologian that the U.S. has ever produced. Maybe not the greatest theologian ever, but a really good one. And so then he's working with the Native Americans, and they have different, like, education. They don't have the Western philosophy background. Um, they don't have Western history. And a lot of those things that kind of we can take for granted... And he's asking the question, if they don't have Greek history and philosophy, can they have a true and genuine faith or not? And he has to say, of course they can, because it's not dependent on Greek education or Greek philosophy. Our faith is dependent on... On Christ and the Holy Spirit is at work to illumine us so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, can you genuinely have faith in Christ without understanding all of these things of apologetics, without understanding the history of Christianity and how Platonism influenced Christianity? Yeah, because it's not all about the mind. The mind is a part of it. History is a part of it. We believe that scripture is true. So as we dive into these things, um, history, philosophy ultimately aligns with scripture, but a genuine faith in Christ is possible for the five-year-old as much as the doctoral candidate is possible for those in an Eastern or a Western culture for minorities, for the dominant culture. It doesn't depend on your education background, but upon the Holy Spirit. And I think I love 1 Corinthians 1 in this regard because it talks about how the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles and is a foolishness to the world. And I think sometimes when we do apologetics, we're almost trying to empty the cross of its foolishness. So, Greg, you mentioned uh, people saying, I don't know enough, so I can't do evangelism. What do you think that comes from? I mean, I think in that regard, it's usually just a fear of... It can be twofold. One is maybe a fear of not knowing what to say, and so then maybe you're going to be disrupting their faith. If <laughs> maybe they feel more justified uh -huh. in their beliefs, and so yeah. you're doing more damage than good. Or it can be more of a personal, like, I am afraid to look into these questions because I don't really know, and they are yeah. a little bit scary to approach. So I'd say that's probably 
where, at least where I can come from in my nerves with evangelism, but that's just speaking for me. Yeah, because we've all said that apologetics is helpful for evangelism, and we all are in agreement on that. It's helpful to present Christ in ways that speak to the culture and speak to the general beliefs of people out there. But we also want to have the humility to realize some of what we believe will just be illogical to the world. The idea that Christ rose from the dead. It's like, you don't just believe that. We can talk about all the proofs that are out there, but to believe that he rose from the dead, that he's God, become man, that he died for our sins, and that by believing in him we might have life. We can't just get there from reason. And Piper has a video on YouTube called Beautifully True. He's just asking, how do we know that scripture is God's word? Which may be one of our future discussions. But he concludes, it is by the Holy Spirit revealing this to us. So then someone who is young, someone who is not uneducated, can have as sure and solid of a belief as someone who feels really confident about all these 10 questions because it's ultimately based on the Holy Spirit, not just on our ability to explain everything. Yeah. Doug, and I think this is one thing you've perhaps talked about, and I might just be getting this from you, but how much more of a beautiful message is that too? Like in the sense of... Absolutely. In the sense of if it was just for the socially elite, for those who were privileged with a good education or those who learned the school or who were schooled in philosophy or the sciences who had the premier access to God, then all of a sudden... It's, I mean, it's the rich, it's the wealthy, it's the educated who have access to God. But how beautiful is Mm -hmm. it that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise? And there are among the Christians, the brilliant, the wise, but there's also the simple, the ordinary. I mean, and that's, I think that really is the beauty that you don't have to be the most brilliant. It's not about how you measure up. It's about the grace of God in revealing his son, Jesus Christ, to us, which is why... I mean, the philosopher would want perhaps God to be known through philosophical reason. The scientist would want God to be known through scientific proofs. Maybe the artist wants the God, God to be known through beauty. But how beautiful is it that God has chosen to reveal himself as he wills to those whom he chooses to reveal himself from all sorts of backgrounds and histories and by his grace, undeserved, and that, yeah, that a child can have a faith that is justified and we don't need to tell a five-year-old hey it's great that you believe that jesus loves you in 20 years after you really understand all of western philosophy and history then you're actually justified in believing what you believe it's like no like jesus loves you and you should rest in that yeah i think it's a beautiful thing that god does not make entrance into his kingdom, into his family, the same that we do in the world. It's not based on how great your education is, how wise and understanding you are, how much wealth, how much physical beauty about your ethnic superiority or whatever you might think you have, but that children 
someone who's mentally handicapped. The poor, the illiterate are not at a disadvantage. And sometimes people make this claim of, uh, wouldn't it be better, would it be more right to believe in Christianity if everyone who is more educated believed this? But and I do think it is a more beautiful thing that God is not ashamed to identify with the lowly of the world to make his love known. Mm. That he's not basing it solely on how great and awesome we are. Yeah. But on his grace by faith. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, can you give us then the first question that we're going to be answering. I think yeah. that's I think that's a good intro for even our a view of apologetics that we don't want to elevate it to something that um that this is the only way like if you're not a brilliant apologist able to give a defense of the faith then uh you're not justified in believing. But we also see a value and I, I think one of the things is I will I will go to battle and give the best of my reason and the best of my thought to apologetic answers. And that's one of my favorite things to actually do is to go and give the best of our thoughts. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time doing that. And so first question, Greg, can you give us that question again and uh, sort of kick us off on that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the first question here is how can Christians claim to have the one true religion when there are thousands of others? Aren't all paths leading to the same God? I just felt like that's kind of a good starting point. Along yeah. the same lines, it's kind of how do you know that Christianity is true and the other worldviews aren't, and it, it's pretty exclusive in its nature. So how do you justify that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's just a good starting point for apologetics because if you don't understand the foundation of the truth of Christianity, you're not going to go super far in terms of its implications. Yeah. I was talking to one of my friends in Malaysia this summer on like my honeymoon trip because Reagan and I got to go and I was talking with this guy. He's from a Buddhist background and he's not a Christian, but we were just sharing what we believe and talking about it. I said, what I believe is intrinsically offensive, even just Christianity in this regard is pretty offensive because it's making the claim to be the one true religion that salvation is only in christ it's like what are your thoughts on that and he was just responding and saying thank you that seems so evident it just of course that's offensive but at least somebody's acknowledging that and I just thought it was interesting because he's aware that that ultimate truth claim means that I believe what he believes is wrong. So part of it is to just start by realizing there is an offense in what we believe here. Yeah, that's that's something I think is something that we almost in our minds want to get rid of, but it's just not going to be possible. And when you understand the gospel there's not really a neutral response to it and it's kind of impossible if you say everyone who accepts christ is going to go to heaven for eternity everyone who doesn't is going to go to hell the if we have a neutral response to that it means we're not really understanding it we're not really actually dealing with that and so in some ways more of a reaction to that one way or the other 
seems more normal than just a kind of passing it off and moving on. Yeah. When we understand that truth. And uh, if, mm-hmm. if we didn't already need more further for it, but the prototypical verse for this is Jesus in John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what, I guess what would we say then? How would you respond? How do you deal with understanding there is a weight behind that claim that there is an exclusivity? How do you then respond to that question? I don't know if I would say this specifically talking to someone, but I think helpful for us as Christians to realize um, is what do we mean by even truth and where that comes from. So that goes back to the intro to apologetics that God has spoken. He is therefore creator. He has the right to do what he wants with his creation. And it makes me think of Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a big existentialist philosopher and existentialism for Sartre means that our existence precedes our essence and what that means is that we exist as humans before we have purpose. So we create our purpose. Something that has an essence or purpose before it exists is a hammer. A hammer is made to drive in nails. The hammer can't stand up and say, I want to run algorithms. Because that's not what it's made for. It has a set purpose Hmm. in a similar way christians believe we have a purpose to know god to glorify him enjoy him forever but culturally we for the most part assume that our existence or our purpose is defined by us that we exist autonomously independently and we get to determine what we believe is right So then Christianity is saying that is not true. It's also furthermore saying every other religion's claim about our purpose is not true. So I think one of the reasons that this is so offensive is because it goes against one of our main beliefs that we are free to determine our own purpose. But we say that our purpose is given to us by God. And you'd say that purpose is what? Or what would you say that purpose is, if you had to sum that up? Uh, I like the answer that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Mm-hmm. Or Jesus in John seventeen three saying, this is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the reason that we have breath, basically. Yeah. One of the things I think with this problem or the question is is asking what's the problem beneath the question? Because this is one of the, I was thinking about this lately as I was thinking about uh, this question and how we might address it as we discussed. And one of the things I realized is everyone should understand that humanity has a problem. I mean, if you look at genocide, war, rape, like if you look at the way that the world actually operates in the world we live in, I feel like we should all, no matter what background you come from, be able to say there is a fundamental, there is a real issue at the core of humanity. Something is not right. Mm -hmm. And I think really what it comes down to is what is the nature of the problem and what solution is actually a good remedy for that? And so 
I thought of an example. It's like, say you have, I right now have a torn ACL and a torn meniscus. And so next Thursday, I'm going to go get a surgery to get that repaired. And the repair for the surgery is somewhat exclusive. It's like, I can't go in there and say, I want you to chop off my right um, arm and to fix this. Or I can't say, just give me some penicillin. Because the reality is there's there's really a limited number or if not like one real solution to my CL. Now, maybe he could choose where to get – he could use a cadaver for the tendon or he could uh, – I think it's going to be taken from my patellar and from my knee bone. And so that's where they're going to reconstruct it. And then they're going to either trim or sew up my meniscus. But even to think there, there's a problem and there's a solution, and the solution is exclusive. It's limiting. Yeah. And I don't. T- I won't tell my doctor uh, or my surgeon, like, how dare you be exclusive? Like, why not give me mm-hmm. a few cough drops and send me home? Because I know that that won't actually work. And so I think w- the same is true when it comes to the way we address Christ and the claims of Christ. The way that we understand the problem itself is going to in many ways dictate how we respond to the solution of Jesus Christ, his gospel, him crucified and raised for our sins to give us new life. And so I guess even just pushing that then to answer this question, what is the problem? If Christ is exclusive, and I, th- and I think that's fair to say, yet it seems there's good reason why he would be exclusive. So what is the problem? at the core of Christianity that's being faced about humanity. Yeah, because I think sometimes people try and define the problem as being kind to one another. And if that is what we're ultimately trying to decide, I don't need to replace my Malaysian friend's view of buddhist morals with just christians say love one another because buddhists have similar arguments and from a lot of my friends i've learned what does it actually look like to work hard to be kind and generous to be friends from people that aren't christians and so if we were just saying here's another moral system for you to learn to be kind to one another Uh, They can stick with what they have, but that's not what we're saying is the root problem here. Greg, what are your thoughts on what we would say is the root problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way I've heard it described is in our minds or the way we just naturally think about the world as we see a hell, a heaven, and a savior. And so hell would be what's kind of the worst case scenario for us so let's say my whole life is just about being in shape my functional how would maybe be getting an injury becoming overweight and being fat so that'd be worst Mm -hmm. case scenario um my savior from that (laughs) or like my i guess heaven what's the best case scenario is i'm in really good shape and everyone thinks i look awesome so that's my heaven that's what my life is really about that's my purpose that's my meaning and so then your savior accomplishes getting you from one end to the other and savior there would be myself working out eating well good nutrition those sort of things and i think that we 
kind of all function that way in terms of life's purpose and meaning and what our life is about. And so usually when you hear people talk about Christianity or religion in general, it's more of the framework as a not an eternal mindset, not there's an actual hell, there's an actual heaven. More of the way that we think about our need is more culturally based than it is biblically based. And you usually wouldn't be seeing our greatest problem is our sin, which separates us from God, not just part of us, but runs deep within us. And our need is forgiveness of sins. And our greatest mm -hmm. purpose is knowing God, glorifying Him forever. And so the way that Christianity approaches that is radically unique because it doesn't say in order to fix this problem, in order to get to God, I'm going to do a bunch of things. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to overcome my sin. It says I need to be saved from my sin by Christ. And so most worldviews would kind of have us as our own savior at the core of it. And I will fix this problem. But Christianity is really unique in that God fixes the problem through Christ brings us to himself brings us to heaven and that's kind of usually just where i go with that and that's hmm. that's what's so unique about christianity versus any other worldview or religion is the way that we deal with sin and how do we get to god because that's a question i usually ask people is what is the purpose of religion what are we trying to accomplish and a lot of it yeah. is it is things like finding purpose and meaning but a lot of the world main world religions are trying to ask that question is how do you get to god and that's radically unique in christianity and the way that happens because it's not i work my way up to god it's god's made a way to him every other religious leader says here's the way do this accomplish these five things whatever it is here's a system of living and they all point to that system but in christianity christ actually comes and says i am the way i am the truth i am the life i am the gate i am the way to god and that's a way different claim and he also says i am god not in pointing to you god but i am god i'm making the way to god yeah yeah greg so i mean you're saying that really the issue that we have is not one that we can solve on our own if we could functionally be our savior, then perhaps other ways of going about this problem would be really functional, would be really practical. But if it is a problem that really is between us and God, and it's one that's outside of our control, that's where I think Christ as the cure, Christ as the hope of humanity comes in and it's uh, you're fatally going to die. And yet there is a hope that is outside you. And like we talked about earlier, it's, it's not something that's bound up in your strength or your ability or your power. It's actually bound up in the strength and the power and the ability of God. And it's all grace. It's all grace. There's a quote from um, Tim Keller where he says, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. So the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. Because at the core of the gospel is a message that no matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is, what your inherent strength or how you perceive or value yourself or what other people have said about you, all those things are irrelevant because Jesus says in John 1, 12, 
where it says of Jesus in John 1, 12, um, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus says of himself, yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And even the thing about that, it's a hope of eternal life that is founded on the strength and on the merit of another. And so it's grace. It's grace on grace. And so I think that's even what's incredible. It's, it's a cure that is outside of us. And so it's an exclusive truth and that this is the only way. It, it, we really do believe it is Christ who is the only way. And yet it's not a moralistic, if you can measure up, you can have Christ. When you do that, it, grace is no longer grace. It becomes works and we lose the whole of the gospel. So it has to be outside of us, dependent on Jesus. And that's at the core of the gospel. And so there's something kind of beautiful. I think even with this question that you can say, okay, let's think about the exclusivity of it. But think of the inclusivity of it. What more inclusive of a message can you have? Is there a possibly more inclusive message that no matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, your background, there's offer of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's where it's, I think that it's kind of fun to even talk about this one. That's kind of along those lines. That's something I've been thinking about, just the actual byproduct of Christianity when it's understood for actually what it is, the grace of God. And we have forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ that has brought us to God. If we understand that, if that's the core message, then the byproduct that has on the world is incredible. And so I've been kind of comparing that. I, I really don't think there's any other worldview that can create humility and love in that way because I'm not better than anyone. I, and I'm just, I've received the grace of God. I need it as much as anybody else does. And so I can't look down on others. I can't think of myself as greater. I can mm -hmm. only live out of a grateful heart but i've thought about politics and we see this kind of i mean i think every generation probably feels this way but it seems like the tensions just can get so turned up when we talk about politics and the it can really just cause a lot of disruption sometimes and i think that the reason that takes place is what happens is we see the other people as the problem and the way I think about the world is right. And if everyone would think about the world the way I think about the world, then we'd have peace and harmony. But there's these people on the other side, and they're the issue. And I'm better than them, ultimately, because I think the way I think, and I have the right take on the world. And so you are naturally think of yourself as superior and see the other people as the problem, and it creates more tension and disruption. And the same thing can happen with religion if we use it if we're the ones who save ourselves because i live the right way i've fulfilled these laws and other people don't and if they would just do that then they'd be good enough like me and so i really think that christianity and grace is the only worldview that can create peace and inclusivity and actually resolve a lot of the tension and hostility that marks all of human history yeah in every culture yeah doug what are you thinking yeah i think just this idea that christ did not come to give us a better moral system he didn't come to create just a political power 
but he came to put away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. It's not some just great teaching, although he has great teaching, and he shows us what it looks like to be truly human, to live out obedience to the Father, and that's a part of what he's doing, but to realize even just the incarnation, God becoming man and going to the cross for our sins is truly astounding. It also shows us that we're not able to save ourselves. It couldn't be just some other human that goes through all of this because our need was so great. So it takes God to become man, to live as the incarnate word, to go to the cross and die. And I think the cross is one of the biggest pieces of just understanding the exclusivity of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a exclusivity that has a crucified savior, you know, who is accomplishing all of salvation on your behalf. Yeah. Cause if Jesus is coming just to make another way, well, the cross makes no sense. That is so horrific for just another way. But if he's coming to pay the penalty that we cannot pay so that we can live the life that only he deserved in union with the Father, in communion with him by the Holy Spirit, then the cross makes sense. So I think even to take this question back to the cross, Mm -hmm. if this isn't exclusive, why would God do this? Mm -hmm. That there's just a horror in that. Already people feel that there's a horror in Christ going to the cross and paying for our sins. But if he doesn't have to, then it actually would be horrific yeah and i think with most apologetic questions that's always where i try to get to is the cross and the message of the gospel and if this is true it kind of validates your religion if it's not then forget it and so most almost every apologetic question i just take back to is jesus who he says he is and if he is, yeah. then he is the way to God and his claims are true. Did he rise from the dead? If he rose from the dead, then I'm going to believe his take on spirituality. And then I'm going to believe that when he says that we need him and that he's the mm-hmm. only way to be safe from our sins. So that's all the crux of it. And that's what I try to get to is, is Jesus who he says he is? If Jesus is who he says he is, then he is the way to God. And so that's more of... I think the approach that I take towards it, we need to explore that. And that's where I like to go. Yeah. And I think one thing I would say, Doug, is you talked about how it's, um, you know, Jesus didn't come just to bring a moral ethic, but in a lot of ways he did, you know, also, and not just, but I think that's where it's the gospel is everything being made new through Christ. And so it's, if we merely understand him as a moral teacher and not as the one who through himself is taking on the problem of humanity, remaking humanity in his image, then I think like we miss that. But the reality is like, it is beautiful too then that like we then as Christians fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love. Um, We have, we're given power, strength to live out a morality that I believe is fundamentally unique even in the world 
and yet still coming through grace, still being channeled through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the risen Christ who now lives and empowers his church for their work, um, which is pretty yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, it is a unique ethic. Um, but if he just came to give us an ethic, then it's not unique. Totally. Because a lot of people have come to give ethics. But what we would all agree on is that Christ came, he lived this perfect life, and now by faith in him, we are accepted before God. And from the spot of acceptance, our lives are changed. We are united with him. We have the Holy Spirit. And this ethic of be who you are in Christ, be holy as God is holy, has to transform our lives. But to realize that that's not the foundation of becoming united with God. Yeah. Versus I think you guys have said a lot of these other religions say perform, then be accepted. But Christianity, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And now we live in light of that reality. Yeah. And that's, again, a beautiful thing. I think one final way to end would be to talk just a little about even how the nature of truth itself is exclusive. Uh, to pull another Tim Keller quote, you said, all truth claims are exclusive. Uh, saying all truth is relative, that excludes. Which exclusive truth is the most inclusive? Grace through faith. And so that's a quote from him. But all truth claims are exclusive. Uh, I was talking to some people about this yesterday. One of the examples was two plus two equals four. How exclusive. <laughs> you just excluded every other possibility. But that's how truth works. Like you you can't really operate without exclusive truth claims. So what what would you be your guys' thought on that? Just the exclusivity exclusivity of truth in general and how how that can possibly be used in conversations about the exclusivity of Christ. I mean, I think just kinda a lot of the focus when we're having apologetic conversations should be asking people their thoughts on things because there's like you were saying there's probably a lot of assumptions going in there's probably a lot of things that maybe they haven't thought through as much in their own life but they're taking this fine tooth comb to christianity so kind of trying to reverse that a little bit and seeing things like that that they're seeing that their take on spirituality is the best take and that any of us we have naturally exclusive views that's how humans are that's how truth is and so trying to maybe just ask some questions to get people to realize that that's is their take and you were referring to that of maybe if that's that inclusive truth and they think that all religions are kind of the same kind of asking like so are you saying that they're wrong when they say that they they're way is the one way to God or their religion is the right religion because they all claim that and so that's not really logically coherent to... yeah seems like everyone's yeah. on some level exclusive with they make a real claim about something they actually believe mm. yeah and one other one other just thing that I think is important is that heavy questions like this and heavy truths of exclusivity there are going to be heavy implications of that and something i try to 
think of myself and also encourage others in as as you get to this point where you realize okay i believe jesus is the way to god i believe he is who he says he is he's the only way i can do one of two things with that i can say i don't like that i don't really see how that's good therefore i'm gonna not follow what jesus said i'm gonna make my own view of religion make god what i want him to be or i can say you know that's hard and that's heavy in ways and there's things about that that just don't sit super well with me and yet i trust god i know he's good i know that on judgment day there's going to be no judgment he makes that's wrong or unjust and i'm going to trust that i'm going to live my whole life just helping others know jesus and pointing others to jesus and so that either leads us to disconnecting from god pushing god out of our minds remaking god or it leads us to action and i think that heavy truths heavy implications of this question of exclusivity should lead us to committing our whole lives to helping others know jesus helping others know the way to god Yeah. yeah and one final one final thought on the idea of you know all religions being true i think when someone says that i think with honestly with sometimes with real motivations and desires for good things out of that. But even that statement, all religions are true or all are right. What's really meant by that is all of them are true insofar as they agree with a certain criteria that I have for truth. They're all true in a certain way, but not in an objectively real true way. Um, but I think, Doug, could you f- maybe finish us off a little bit by just thinking even what is what is maybe some of the heart behind that and how does Christianity actually um, bring about the type of peace that I think perhaps people are wanting when they talk about this inclusivity? Yeah, I think about talking with my dad in high school along the lines of having peace with people that disagree with you. And he, we were having an argument about politics. He said, okay, let's stop and you take my position. And I said, I can't do it, Dad. And he said, okay, no, let's just trade positions in the argument. I'll argue your point. You argue mine. Like, I, I just can't do it. He said, Doug, why not? He said, because what you think makes no sense. There's no validity to your argument. <laughs> and he says all right, we've got a problem here. Let's stop. And we need to figure this out. And I think sometimes we can go through life thinking that everyone else's point makes no sense, that we can't be sympathetic towards them. But I think we need to have the humility to stop, listen well to others, and treat them with dignity as humans that are made in the image of God so that whether someone agrees with us or not, whether we think their logic is flawed or they think ours is, we need to treat them as image bearers of God, to show them love, to listen well, and to realize that they have reasons for believing what they do and that we have reasons for believing what we do. And it's not just that, oh, I happen to have everything all right. There actually are blind spots that I've got. But then to come back to what we believe is that Christ has come to show us the truth of the gospel. We do believe that there's truth in other religions. So if you look at 
Buddhism, if you look at whatever it is, they can help you know general principles for how to be kind to one another. But we believe as Christians is that what we need isn't just more rules on how to be kind, but we need a savior who redeems us in the image of God. And part of that is living out obedience to God's commands, but it's much more than that. In order to truly have peace with one another, we need Christ to pay for all of our sins and to count us with his righteousness. So then we want to have humility in talking with others Because we don't say, I've got it together, I've accomplished this, but Christ came. And because he loved me, who was his enemy, I also can love others. And because Christ has accepted me, I can accept other believers, and I can be kind to those who disagree with me. So whether or not we come down on the same point of agreeing... We need to treat people with love as Christ loved those like me and you who rebelled against him. Yeah, yeah. Amen. It's all grace. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.